Hey everybody, before we uh, dive in to the, uh, the sermon part of our morning, I wanted to check in on how everybody was doing with the community Bible reading experience that we started uh, this past week. We're five days in, 25% of the way through. Um, for those who don't know, uh, this fall and winter, our community, hundreds and hundreds of people in our community, I think we gave over, away over 500 Bibles, um, have committed to reading through the New Testament together, half the New Testament this fall, these four weeks, and then another, the other half of the New Testament at the end of uh, January, beginning of February in the early winter. And uh, we're reading it together. We're reading it in community. We're debriefing it in groups and just talking about what God is revealing to us about him and about us and about loving God and loving people through the New Testament. I don't know how your first week was. Mine was really interesting. I, I had a really, really hard time because the whole purpose is that we read big, right? That's one of the ideas. We read big. We, we, uh, you don't stop at every word or verse or chapter. There are no verses and chapters in this Bible. And I found myself struggling to not like zone in on every word. And what does that word mean? To just try and train myself again to read in terms of the story. But it was a, it was a fantastic, I hope you had a good experience too, because it was a good week uh, for me in that regard. Um, I want to take a minute and just clarify what's happening with these study groups Monday nights at our Glenridge location starting at six o'clock in the cafe. Here's the deal. Let me explain what these things aren't, because there's been some confusion about this. These are not Bible study, okay? Uh, I'm not going to be teaching anything. Uh, Pat Beard, who's leading with me, he's not going to be teaching anything. We're basically going to be facilitating table roundtable discussions to debrief the readings of the week. Exactly the same roundtable discussions that hopefully life groups across our church are having when you get together to debrief the readings starting uh, this week. You'll start debriefing the readings. And so uh, I guess what I want to say is if you're already in a life group, don't come to this thing. Unless your life group is not going to be debriefing the readings and you want to be a part of that. If you have no one else to talk about this with, then come. But uh, if you otherwise, if you're in a life group that's talking about the readings uh, in your group meetings, then don't come to this thing. This is for people who aren't yet connected into groups to give them a place to debrief the reading of the New Testament and hopefully give them a taste of community and maybe even encourage you to get involved in a life group starting in January. What I do want to do, what I do want to say is if we want an evening where we get to debrief all of this together as a community, start sending your questions to my email address, mkraus at southridge.cc. It, it, the email address is going to be on the screen. Um, send your questions to that email address, and if I get a ton of questions, if I'm like flooded and inundated with questions, then we'll organize a night at the end of these four weeks, and we'll just have a big whole discussion about the New Testament, or at least the half that we read, and we'll talk about some of the questions there. Does that sound like a good deal? So if you're not in a group, show up at the Glenridge location tomorrow night at 7 p.m. and be a part of that community experience. Now I want to turn our attention to Matthew chapter 8. If you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 8. We're in worship this morning, so having a Bible is probably a decent idea. It's certainly not a bad idea. And we're going to pick up the story of Jesus right where Jeff left off in his exploration uh, last week at Matthew chapter 8 verse 23. That's where we're going to pick it up. This is our uh, third week in this series called All In, where we're exploring Matthew's chapter 8 and 9 and uh, looking at the life of Jesus 
And basically, this series, thematically speaking, runs on two parallel tracks. And if you understand these two things, you're going to understand every single talk in this series. And the two tracks are the two conversations that we've already had. Uh, The first track is what I talked about two weeks ago. The idea that the power and authority of God rests on Jesus in order to bring healing and hope and restoration into a dark and broken and hurting and sinful world. That's, that's what Jesus is all about. That Jesus is endowed with God's authority, not just in his words, like in the Sermon on the Mount, which we studied for the last year and a half, but in his works. He is a living, when we read, as we did this week in the book of Luke, the story of Jesus, we are looking at a living, breathing manifestation of what the the powerful love of God looks like when it's brought into the world through the life of a human being. And so we looked at these healing stories uh, that Jesus, that Matthew told of what Jesus did in the lives of people who were broken and sick and so on, and how we witnessed the healing and hope of God flooding into their lives. And those stories aren't just for 2,000 years ago. Uh, two weeks ago, we prayed, we cried out to God as a community that we'd experience a tidal wave of that kind of healing again. And it's been honestly my privilege to hear actually in the last couple of weeks some stories about ways in which God is bringing healing into lives in our uh, community. If you were part of our baptism two weeks ago, you heard Josh Miller in our Welland location um, tell the story about his 15-year-old kid telling the story about how he had this recurring cancerous tumor in his ear that would come back. They'd cut it out and it would come back. They'd cut it out and come back year after year after year. And this kid was told when he was 10 years old, Doctors told him, if, if we cut you open one more time and the tumor's there, we're just going to gut your whole ear and you'll be deaf on that side, but we, we can't let this cancer continue to grow back. And that 10-year-old kid went home and prayed, God, heal me of this cancer. And the next morning when the doctors cut him open, there wasn't a tumor anywhere. And as far as I know, five years later, Josh still, or Joel, Joel is still uh, cancer-free. It's an amazing story. I got an email this week uh, from a guy in our community whose dad suffered a really, really significant health event a number of weeks ago. And there were really moments where his future was absolutely uncertain. Moments where the doctor saying there's still hope was really breaking news. And he sent me an email this week and said, God has done this amazing healing thing in the life of my dad. My dad is like, so much better. He's, you know, at home and he's outside most days and doing work. And, and he said, and even more significantly than that, my relationship with my dad is being healed. And God is just doing through Christ this amazing thing in our community. So that was the one rail that Jesus has this authority and power to bring healing and hope into lives that are broken and dark and hurting and sick. The other track is what Jeff talked about last week, and it has to do with Jesus' authority, but it has to do with our response to Jesus' authority in our lives. Our response of faith, of what discipleship looks like, what it looks like to follow Jesus. And it was a story of two men who wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus clears up for them misunderstandings about what following him looks like. And so Jeff told us last week that a life of following Jesus is not a life of just a life of just learning about him. It is a lifestyle of living like him, no matter what the cost. 
And it's not something that we do on our terms and in our timing. It's something that we do on his terms and his timing. We don't, we don't come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you, uh, but here are my terms and conditions. Click agree if that's acceptable to you. No, no, no. We come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you. And he gives us his terms and conditions and says, you click, I agree. Right? That this is, this is what he's invited us into. And I was in New York City with my wife last weekend, but I heard about how inspiring it was to hear people across all three of our locations standing up uh, individually and with spouses and with families um, to say, I'm all in in following Jesus, in, in being fully devoted to following him no matter where he leads, no matter what it costs, no matter what it is he asked me to do, I'm all in with following Jesus. Well, this is where we pick up the text this week. With Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 23, another story that runs on both of those tracks about Jesus' authority and our response in terms of following him. In Matthew 8, 23, it says, Then he, Jesus, got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. The word then sounds like Matthew's picking up the story from somewhere else, and he actually is. This this story begins as the continuation of what Jeff preached on last week, of an episode that starts in Matthew 8, verse 18, where it says that basically Jesus saw the crowds and he saw a boat and he said to his disciples, listen guys, we, we should probably get in this boat, excuse me, and get to the other side of the lake. And then he gets interrupted by these two conversations about discipleship. And then having talked to those two guys and cleared up their misconceptions, he gets back to the story and says, and then, he, and then Jesus got into the boat. And I think the fact that Matthew interrupts his own story to talk about these two discipleship conversations is significant. Because I don't think Matthew takes lightly the notion of interrupting his own. I think if Matthew's going to interrupt his own story, it's going to be for a good, because why else would you interrupt yourself? It makes no sense because I do it all the time, actually, and um, where I just, I'm kind of, my brain's going down. My wife hates it, actually, when I do it. It drives her absolutely, but not as much as when I um, um, stick long pauses into sentences. But all of that is to say, Matthew, if he's going to interrupt his story, if he's going to interrupt himself, it's going to be because he has a reason. And the reason is that what Matthew wants to say is, however you hear this boat story, I want you to hear it through the lens of discipleship. I want you to hear it as a story about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And actually, he reaffirms that in the way he writes verse 23. He says, then he, Jesus, got in the boat and his disciples followed him. Like Matthew is really intentional about writing the verse that way. He doesn't say, then Jesus and his disciples got in the boat. Or he doesn't say, then they all got in the boat or the boat was there and everyone got into it. No, no, Matthew is very deliberate. He says, then Jesus got in the boat and his disciples followed him. I think Matthew wants to draw our attention to the fact that this is a story about following Jesus wherever he leads. See, the boat's Jesus' idea. It's Jesus' initiative. It's Jesus' timing. It's Jesus' decision. It's Jesus who leads the way getting into the boat. And the disciples make the decision to follow where Jesus is leading. And I don't think that's an accident that Matthew writes it that way. Because Jeff told us last week, followers of Jesus do what? They follow Jesus. 
And that's what this is a story of. This is a story about what happens when you follow Jesus and what it looks like to live a life of faith in following him. And this is exactly what happens. Verse 24, it says, Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. On the one hand, it's not really that surprising uh, an event that a suddenly a furious storm would whip up on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, the Sea of Galilee was famous for its ferocious and even spontaneous storms. See, well, what happens is the Sea of Galilee, uh, the water surface is about 600 feet below sea level. So it's down. And what happens is this warm air uh, gathers over the Sea of Galilee. And because it's warm air, it begins to rise and creates a vacuum. And the air, something has to rush in, right? And the air that rushes in is all this cold air from the plains to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. So the warm air rises, creates a convection current, and this cold air rushes in. And it rushes in as this incredibly violent wind that stirs up the entire lake. It kind of churns all the waters. And as the cold air rushes in and comes into contact with the hot air that's over the lake, it creates this incredible thundercloud. And um, it just unleashes these furious storms on the Sea of Galilee that can, that can arise in a moment's notice. Now the disciples, I don't think, at least some of them, wouldn't have been surprised by the storm that gets whipped up because at least some of the disciples are fishermen. They've, they've lived their lives on this lake. They know how this lake behaves. They're well acquainted with its patterns and its behavior and they are seasoned veterans at surviving these kinds of storms that just whip up on the lake, they've survived many of them over the course of their career. That's why they're still alive to be in a boat with Jesus because they've survived the ball because they figured out how to survive the storm. The rest of the disciples who aren't fishermen, they're just uh, terrified right from the get-go. The Jews um, are not really seafaring kind of people. They're land people to a Jewish mindset. The sea was really a dark an evil place. It was a place of spiritual chaos and turmoil. It was literally an evil, it was the haunt of demons, the abode of evil spirits. Jews did not go out on the lake unless there was a reason to go out on the lake. And so the rest of the disciples were terrified anyway. And then this storm whips up and there's something about this storm, I think, that makes all the rest of the disciples, even the fishermen, suspect that this is not a regular storm like the ones that they faced before. So when Matthew writes about this storm, he says that there was a great, there was a seismos, a furious seismos. That's not the regular word for storm. In fact, the Greek word seismos, maybe you can even hear our English word seismic. It means a great shaking, an earthquake. This wasn't just a storm, this was a storm that shook the earth, that shook the lake. It was, it's a word that Matthew actually only uses in his gospel to describe the shaking of the ground that happens when good and evil clash with each other in this cosmic battle that's going on all around us all the time. When good and evil collide, what you get is a seismos. You get a shaking of the earth. This is a storm, Matthew's saying, 
not just a regular storm. There's a storm of apocalyptic proportion. And the disciples are terrified. All of them, including the fishermen, are terrified of the storm. And what makes it all worse, what makes every bit of it worse, is that there's Jesus in the back of the boat and he's sleeping. Apparently blissfully ignorant, completely unaware, or maybe unconcerned, or maybe unwilling, or maybe unable, or maybe unmotivated to deal with the storm that's raging all around him. But there is Jesus in the back of the boat doing absolutely nothing to rescue the disciples from this incredible seismos, this apocalyptic storm that had waves sweeping over the boat. Matthew says, covering the boat, swamping the boat, threatening to submerge this tiny little boat with the disciples in the middle of the lake. And some of you, there are some people in all of our locations this morning who know exactly how the disciples feel. You know exactly how they feel because you're living right now or you have lived in the past in the middle of your own seismos. You've lived in the darkness and chaos and turmoil of a storm in your life. You've had, literally, you've been shaken by the circumstances that have surrounded you on every side, whether they're health-related, you know, a diagnosis mentally or emotionally or physically or whether they're relationally related. You've, you've been shaken by a relational storm, whether a friendship that is exploding or a marriage that's imploding. You've been shaken by a family storm by kids that were supposed to come and didn't or kids that did come and are no longer. My wife and I celebrated the the anniversary of the delivery of our stillborn son this last week. And some of you know exactly how that feels. You're living through the chaos of the kids that did come and now who are now living in chaos. Or some of you are living through work storms. Some of you are living through financial storms. Some of you are living through the storm of addiction. And honestly, if you were to be totally honest, you'd say, I'm not sure that this tiny little boat of my life, this tiny little boat of my family, I'm not sure the tiny little boat of my career or of my sanity is gonna survive. It's being swamped by the chaos that I'm living through and I feel like I'm being buried and I feel like I'm going under the water and you're absolutely terrified that you're not gonna make it and you don't see a way out of the storm and what makes it the hardest of all is that Jesus seems to be sleeping. It seems like Jesus has fallen asleep on the job. That Jesus has fallen asleep at the switch and that some reason he's unaware or unable or unmotivated or uncaring or something, he's unwilling to get involved in the thing that you're going through and you're in the middle of this storm and you're crying out to God, why me? Why me, God? Why are you doing this to me? About nine years ago, Krista and I were newly married and uh, we had just lost our first pregnancy in a miscarriage, um, the first of several. 
And we were in a season where we were trying to get pregnant again and it just wasn't happening. And the months were being to pile up and, and it, was, it was month after month. And it was getting harder and harder and more and more frustrating all the time. And I remember one night we were together and we were talking about it and we were crying and, and being angry and praying. And, and somewhere in the midst of the conversation, the sentiment crystallized in the sentence, God, how much more do we have to do before you will give us a baby? And some of you know exactly how that question feels. You know exactly how it feels. But that question is built on an assumption. And the assumption is that if I follow Jesus, he'll make my life easier. And I hate the fact that I have to be the bearer of bad news this morning, but the bad news that I have to deliver this morning is that that statement is simply not true. We live like it's true. We live as though if we follow Jesus, he'll make our life easier. If we're faithful to him, then he ought to be faithful to us to give us a job, to give us freedom from our addiction, to give us our health, to give us a spouse, to give us kids, to give us money, to give us uh, you know, a three-bedroom, two-bath, 1.5-story home in the suburbs with a white picket fence. Whatever it is that you want Jesus to give you right now, we live with this assumption that if we follow Jesus faithfully enough that he'll be faithful to us and give us what we're asking for and make our life easier. And I'm here to tell you that that assumption just isn't true. It isn't. Just look at the story. Jesus got into the boat and the disciples followed. The disciples found themselves in the middle of the storm because they were following Jesus. Jesus led and they followed and then discovered that they found themselves in the middle of the storm. They were in the middle of the storm, not because they were outside of God's will, but because they were inside of God's will. And I'm not saying Jesus caused the storm. I'm not saying he whipped up the storm. I'm not saying he knew about the storm and intentionally sailed into the storm. I'm not saying Jesus was trying to test their faith or teach them a lesson or that he even had a higher purpose. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying Jesus got into a boat and the disciples followed where Jesus was leading and they ended up sailing right into the middle of a storm. And all I mean to communicate is this. That when you choose to follow Jesus, you don't get to live out that life of faith in some insulated, isolated ivory tower classroom somewhere where you just get to learn about what Jesus is like. Following Jesus is a lifestyle that gets lived out in the real world. And sometimes in the real world, stuff happens. Storms happen. They happen because despite the fact that Jesus has invited us to live in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, you know, I will give you life until it overflows. And, and he invites us to experience the love and joy and peace and hope of the kingdom of God. But we get to experience that kingdom of God coming into a world that is still filled with brokenness and darkness and sickness and sin. And sometimes... We still, when we live at the tip of the spear of the kingdom of God penetrating into a dark and broken world, we still get to experience the darkness and the brokenness. Because the truth of the matter is that the world that the kingdom of God is breaking into is actually a cosmic battlefield 
in the war that wages in the heavens between good and evil, between God and the devil. And yes, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, God has won the war. And that victory will be final one day when Jesus returns. But in the meantime, the battle still rages. And the Bible says that Satan, knowing that he has lost and knowing that his time is short, rages about the earth looking for people to hurt. And the people he's looking for are people who are devoted to following Jesus. I was with a friend of mine recently who's also lost a son. We were talking about why bad things happen to good people. And my friend Tom was wearing a Bruins hat. And I said, uh, Tom, I said, let me ask you this question. I said, when do hockey games get chippy? And he said, when the score is out of control. And I said, it's exactly right. When one team knows they've already lost but the buzzer hasn't sounded. They stop playing to win and they just start playing to hurt people, to hurt as many people as they can before the buzzer sounds. And I said to Tom, that's what the enemy is doing. He knows he's lost and he's just trying to hurt as many people as he can before Jesus comes. That's just real. The kingdom of God does not protect us from the pain of the world. In fact, the kingdom of God comes into the world because of the cross of Jesus. For for Jesus, the kingdom means death on a cross. It means pain and suffering. And then he says to us, pick up your cross and follow me. If you're gonna follow Jesus, you are walking into a life that will include pain. Following Jesus doesn't make life easier. It makes life better but it doesn't make life easier. Sometimes when you follow Jesus, you find yourself sailing not around the storm or out of the storm. You find yourself sailing right into the teeth of the storm. And it was exactly in that moment, in that reality, that the, that the disciples did the only thing that they could think of to do. In verse 25, it says, the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Lord, save us, wake up, don't you care? We're going to drown. They, they knew, the veteran fishermen among them knew that this storm was over their heads. They knew they were in way beyond what they were able to manage. They knew all of the strategies they had used before to get themselves out of past storms were not gonna work. And they did the only thing they could think of to do and that was to turn to Jesus and to cry out as long as they could and as loud as humanly possible, help us to cry out to Jesus in prayer. It's interesting. I don't know what they expected Jesus to do because when Jesus eventually intervenes in the storm, they're all amazed and they say, you know, what kind of guy is it? I didn't know he could do that. I, I, I think, genuinely, I think they woke Jesus up and what they wanted him to do was to pray and to pick up an oar and start rowing with the rest of them. And what Jesus does instead is incredible. In verse 25 at the end, he replies to them, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. 
And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Jesus gets up and with the word of his mouth, he calms the storm. Like the centurion said, we talked about this two weeks ago, that Jesus living in full submission to the power and authority of God had the authority of God in his life so that he had complete power over everything under him, everything in heaven and on earth. And the centurion said, I know all you have to do is speak the word and stuff happens. And Jesus Jesus gets up in the boat and he speaks a word of rebuke and the storm is calmed like that. In fact, Matthew says there was a great calm that fell over the lake. The Greek word is mega. It was mega calm over the lake. The lake in an instant was like glass and the wind died an absolute death and it was dead still and dead calm. There was not a hint or a whisper of breeze. It was absolute impenetrable calm because of the word of Jesus. That is the authority that Jesus has in your life, that Jesus could speak the word and bring absolute calm into the midst of your storm. You have to believe that. Even if you have very little faith, look at what Jesus says to the disciples. He says, you of little faith, you have so little faith. In another one of the gospels, he says, um, have you no faith at all? And then he goes and calms the storm. You don't have to have a lot of faith in order for Jesus to do the calming of the storm in your life. I know that some of you have been told in the past that the reason Jesus didn't answer your prayer is because you didn't have enough faith and that's absolute garbage. I'd use a different word, but I'm preaching. (laughs) It's absolute garbage. Jesus is not upset with the disciples because of the lack of quantity of faith. He says, you have little faith, and then he does it anyway. Jesus rebuked the disciples, not because of the quantity of their faith, but because of the quality of their faith, because of the kind of faith that they have. They came to Jesus in absolute fear and said, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Jesus had no part with no problem with the Lord save us part. It was the we're gonna drown part that bothered Jesus. See, the disciples came to Jesus believing or wanting to believe that Jesus could help rescue them from the storm. And Jesus didn't want them to have the kind of faith that that believes that God can rescue them from the storm. Jesus wanted them to have the kind of faith that trusts God even in the midst of the storm. He had no problem with their prayer. He had problem with their fear. See, what was going on inside the disciples was there was a war being raged between fear and faith, and it's a battle to the death because those fear and faith cannot coexist in the human soul. If you are living in fear, you cannot be responding to your circumstance in faith. And if you are living in faith, you will not respond to your circumstances in fear. Their situation was terrible. Yes, it was their terror that Jesus had a problem with because they had grown afraid, forgetting that the power of presence of God was in their midst in the form of Jesus who was sleeping in the boat. Jesus did not want them to have the kind of faith to believe that God could calm the storm. Jesus wanted them to have the kind of faith that trusted God to live, to take care of them within the storm. That's what Jesus wanted from them. And how do I know that? 
because of what Jesus was doing. What if follow, turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor what followers of Jesus do. Followers of Jesus, what? Follow Jesus. What was Jesus doing in the story? Was Jesus afraid for his life? Was Jesus in terror? Was Jesus crying out to God in fear? Was Jesus afraid that they were gonna drown? Was Jesus throwing himself down before the Lord in prayer? What was Jesus doing in the midst of the storm? Nothing, he was sleeping. <laughs> the son of man doesn't has no place to lay his head. Um, so when he finds a chance to catch a cat nap, he takes it. And there he is resting in the back of the boat on a waterbed, <laughs> catching some Z's. Jesus is asleep unafraid of the storm because he's living in absolute trust that God is going to take care of him in the midst of the storm. Followers of Jesus do what? Follow Jesus. What Jesus wants for us is the kind of faith, not that, that needs God to remove the storm. I think a small faith needs God to remove the storm. It's a big faith that trusts God in the storm. That's the kind of faith that Jesus wants for you. Can you live with that kind of faith that doesn't need Jesus to remove the storm, but that can trust Jesus in the midst of the storm? I've been inspired lately by some stories of people in our community who are living with that kind of faith. And I want you to hear just one of those stories this morning. Check out Eliza's story, who's been living through a storm that isn't going away anytime soon but is choosing to trust God in the midst of it. Check it out. Do you think, do you, think you can have that kind of faith in the midst of the storm that you're going through this morning? Can you, rather than needing God to remove the storm, can you trust Jesus in the midst of the storm. Can you have the kind of faith that trusts Jesus even if he doesn't heal your depression? Even if he doesn't cure your cancer? Can you trust Jesus even if he doesn't get you that job or lift you out of poverty? Can you have the kind of faith that trusts Jesus even if he doesn't find you a spouse? or give you a kid, or reconcile that relationship, do you have the kind of faith that can trust Jesus even if he doesn't deliver you from your addiction or from your sin? Do you have the kind of faith, could you have the kind of faith that can trust Jesus in the midst of the storm? The kind of faith that right in the middle of whatever it is that you're going through, can stay focused on knowing and worshiping and trusting in Jesus, the kind of faith that right in the middle of what you're going through can learn to discern the presence of God in Jesus with you in the midst of it, the kind of faith that can lean in to the presence and love of God and can experience as a result the reality that Eliza experienced, that right in the middle of what you're going through, Jesus is real to you.
And you can know that you know that you know that it, despite your circumstances, Jesus loves you. Because at the end of the day, friends, this is just true. You can't pick your storm, but you can pick your Savior. And you... And picking your Savior doesn't mean that Jesus has to deliver you from the storm. It just means that you have to lean into the kind of faith that allows you, empowers you to trust him in the midst of the storm. Close your eyes for a second. Close your eyes. We're going to pray together. Father, you know the hearts of folks gathered across all three of our locations. You know the circumstances that swirl around their lives and the lives of the people they love. You know, God, the fear that is gripping people's lives, that is squeezing out a life of faith. And God, we just stand against it all. We stand against it all, God. And I pray that faith would arise in the lives of those who are struggling right now. That like the father in the gospel of Mark who says, Lord, I do believe, help me with my unbelief. God, I pray that you would pour the gift of faith into the lives of those who are, find themselves in the midst of a storm today. I pray for those whose loved ones are in the midst of a storm. Give us faith to believe for our loved ones. And teach us to trust that you will keep us safe even in the midst of the storm. Father, answer us when we call to you. Give us relief from our distress. Have mercy on us and hear our prayer. So that as it says in the Psalms, in peace we can lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, in the midst of our storms, make us dwell in safety. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.